You are listening to Chthonia, the podcast of the Dark Feminine. Chthonia's logo was designed by J.R. Malpair. Background music is Phantasm by Kevin McLeod. Hello and welcome to Chthonia. I'm your host, Breach Burke, and this week, um, as we are continuing to wind down the uh, Mahavidya series, we're going to talk about Bhagalamukhi. Uh, the goddess who is known as the Paralyzer. Uh, now, Bhagalamukhi's, um, she's somewhat interesting among the tantric deities because she's the least well understood, I think. Um, her name means uh, Bhagala, uh, has to do with, uh, or comes from the word Baka, which means crane, and Mukhi is face. So the idea is she's a woman with a face like a crane. Um, however, there isn't any place where she's actually portrayed as having a face like a crane. So it's not entirely, there's some possible thoughts on that, that, uh, Kinsley has about why she might be associated with crane. So we'll get into that. Um, but her other association is with the color yellow. For whatever reason, um, Bhagalamukhi is, when she is worshipped, it is always through, um, the offering of yellow objects or of, uh, spices like turmeric, which are yellow. And, uh, again, her association with yellow is also not clear. Um, we're going to look at some of her origin myths first. And in her origin myths, uh, there's, there, as you can see, those are also vastly different and also do not seem to be connected in any way. So, um, we can say that she is primarily associated with the god Vishnu. Vishnu is the one who supposedly, um, brings her up, uh, when he prays to Lalita Tripura Sundari. Okay, and she is known as the paralyzer because in most images of her, she is sitting on top of a corpse in her yellow garments, and there is a demon at her knees, down on her knees, and she is holding onto his tongue. And sometimes also, you know, there's a sense that he's being pulled by the hair, but but he she she holds onto his tongue. So in other words, she's paralyzing the speech, saying, you know, you know, stopping someone from speaking. Okay. Now, some say that um, rather than Bhagala, the word should be Vagala, which has to do with a bridle or the holding of a t- the tongue. But um, but see that that doesn't that doesn't really jive with the um, with the Muki part of it. Um, that's really funny. Somebody tried to call me. Um, it has to do with the Muki part of it because uh, Muki again has to do with face. So bridal face. I mean that. I mean that might have to do with the demon, but that doesn't have to do with the goddess. So um, it, it's not. It, it, let's just say the the Vagala um, connection is questionable, even though uh, there's some scholars who think that 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 was probably um, the original term that somehow got corrupted in some fashion. Um, it doesn't really, it doesn't really make any more sense than, than anything else. Um, I think they said there are three images of her that maybe show her with the face of a crane, but strictly speaking, that is not part of her iconography. Um, and she is also said to be the giver of the eight siddhis in Tantra, which we will talk about. So this is her, um, and siddhis of course are, are sort of magical powers and most of them have to do with paralyzing or overcoming your enemy. Okay, so she is definitely a goddess associated with um, this, uh, how can I put it? Um, she's a goddess associated with, uh, you know, this, um, th- this, sort of, this sort of paralyzing energy. 
or this energy of um, destroying those, you know, I, she, she seems to be very, very much connected to language and to, um, to proper speech, because that seems to be another, um, another aspect of her. Now, let's start by talking about her origin myths, okay? And um, as usual, I'm, I'm referring to David Kinsley here, being this is the most um, complete and authoritative source on the Mahavidyas. I'm just going to move my microphone closer, so sorry if that made any kind of weird noise. Okay, so Kinsley says he meant, says that he's found three myths concerning the origin of Bhagalamukhi. Is according to the first myth of once upon a time in the Krita Yuga, which sometimes has a different name. Uh, sometimes it's called the Satya Yuga or the Sataya Yuga. Um, a uh, cosmic storm threatened to destroy the universe. Many creatures were killed, and Vishnu, who was reclining on the cosmic serpent Shesha, was himself disturbed. He went to a sacred pond named Hadija, which means turmeric, which is the yellow spice, and undertook austerities to find a solution to the problem. Um, and, uh, it's noted here too, that sometimes Vishnu is referred to by the name, uh, Pitarambara, which is also the name, another name of Bhagalamukhi. Pitarambara means he, the one who wears yellow clothes. So she's sometimes referred to as Pitambara Devi. Okay. So there's another very intimate connection to Vishnu there. Uh, he prays to Tripura Sundari, who appears and lit up the entire world with her presence. She brought forth Bhagalamukhi who sported in that pond of turmeric who sported in that pond of turmeric and then calmed the storm with her great powers okay so um Bhagalamukhi um ends up calming the storm between the end of the first and second yugas now we're going to talk a little bit about the yugas at the end um and where the color yellow might come in with respect to that okay um now in the second myth about her she a demon named Madan undertakes austerities and wins the boon of Vaksidi, according to which anything he says says comes about. Well, I don't know if that would be nice, nice uh, Siddhi to have or not. I, you know, sometimes we say come, have things come out of our mouths, and we're like, oops, really wish we didn't say that. But uh, in any case, he causes a lot of mischief with this Siddhi, and um, the gods become enraged with the kind of damage that this demon does, so they uh, worship Bhagalamukhi. She stops the demon's rampage by taking a hold of his tongue and stilling his speech. Before she could kill him, however, he asked to be worshipped with her, and she relented. That is why he is depicted with her. So, again, on the Facebook, um, sorry, Facebook, my God, the YouTube version of this video, um, of this um, podcast, wow, it's late in the afternoon, and it clearly shows. Um, uh, you have, um, you know, uh, Bhagalamukhi is frequently shown with this demon um, at her knees. And she's either, the one image I'm looking at now, she's actually holding on to his hair. Um, but typically she is holding on to his tongue. So uh, he is, so when she is worshipped in that image, you see uh, the image of, um, uh, of um, Madan along with her. Okay, so this third myth touches on the origins of both Bhagalamukhi and Dumavati. Now, if we remember, Dumavati is the widow goddess, and she becomes, uh, you know, she exists because she is sort of a form of Shakti or Parvati who swallows Shiva. And once she disgorges Shiva, he becomes angry with her, and, you know, it is though, well, since you were going to kill your husband, you are going to live as a widow. So, um, so it's the same story where Shiva's living on Mount Kalesa with Parvati. She becomes hungry. Her body becomes racked with pain. She complains. Who asks something to eat? 
Oh, Shiva, give me some food for I am famished. Shiva tells her to be patient and wait a bit, after which he would give her anything she wanted. But having said this, Shiva ignored her and went back to doing yoga. She appealed to him again, saying she was desperate for food. He again asked her to wait a while. She protested she could not wait. She was starving to death. While he was still uncooperative, she put Shiva himself into her mouth to devour him. After a little while, a smoke began to issue from Parvati's body. The smoke was her maya, the magic power of illusion. Then Shiva emerged from Parvati, saying, Listen, O goddess, woman without a husband, as you just were, is called a widow and must strip herself of the adornments and marks of a married woman. That woman, you, who left her husband by swallowing him, will be known as Bhagalamuki, and the smoke that came for her will be known as the goddess Dumavati. Okay, so very that's that's kind of the idea. Because again, normally we associate Bhagalamuti with Vishnu. In this case, we have her associated with Shiva, but as the one who devours Shiva. So uh, so that's, um, it's hard to know what to th- quite think about that, because as Kinsley notes, this is very, very strange, because none of these um, versions of these different stories, they all seem to be very vastly different, and they don't seem to come together um, in any kind of fashion that really um, sort of uh, unifies this goddess. It's like she's... Um, you know, she she's you know she's she's sort of it, it creates a great mystery as to what her um, you know what her core symbolism and what her significance is, other than the crane, the color yellow, um, and the widowhood part. Um, I don't know. Other than that one story, there doesn't seem to be any other um, discussion. Um, now, uh, just to, to follow up with Kinsley, just to, uh, by way of explanation. He says, these three myths are so dissimilar, it's difficult to think of them as variants of each other. They seem to represent three different meditations on Bhagalamukhi's origin. Okay, in the first, she's associated with Vishnu and plays a role similar to an avatar. Um, that is, a cosmic crisis arises and Vishnu Im- initiates action to meet it. Bhagala emerges to restore cosmic stability. Okay. Um... In the second myth, she's propitiated by the gods and who rescue a world from a power-crazed demon whose very words can kill and destroy. Now, this is actually in line with a lot of the Mahavidyas who seem to have this sort of demon-slaying uh, role. In, different, in this case, um, it's by paralyzing him and by paralyzing his speech. Okay, And that is the thing she is most known for being associated with. And um, so she, she, gives the, she gives the Vox City, but apparently she also here takes it away. And um, in this third myth, you know, again, as a role of Shiva's wife, that fits in with the whole idea of, in a way, of the Mahavidyas as being manifestations of Parvati, Shiva's wife. Okay? So just as Dumavati is a manifestation, so is Bhagalamuki. So she sort of represents that, um, that widowhood, that, that devouring aspect. Um, and, uh, you know... So, and actually some, the, the suggestion here is that may be where some of the crane association comes from, because um, when the crane eats, it swallows its prey whole. So that may be her association with the crane. Okay, but, but no, we're not 100% sure about that. Okay. Um, so if we, um, okay, so again, she's also referred to as Pitambara Devi. Um, and, you know, Kinsley talks about the Vagala-Bagala, uh, difference. Um, 
so you know so there's there's that um he says and he he mentions that what's troubling about interpreting bagalamuki as meaning crane-faced is that she's rarely shown with a bird um in um in the bagalamuki temple in bakandi in uh, himal pradesh uh, him, i'm sorry himachal pradesh the framed picture of bagala hangs outside the garbagura this, in this image, she sits on a crane that is attacking the demon with its beak and claw. A second crane is flying to the attack. In another image, she sits decorated with, is decorated with swans. Um, so, uh, yeah, again, she's not usually depicted with any kind of bird symbolism. And he speculates that, um, you know, that, that her um, association with Siddhis or magical powers may, may represent, may, may connect her in this association with birds. Um, so he notes the crane and its ability to stand absolutely still while hunting is a symbol of intense concentration. In this sense, the crane is an appropriate symbol of the yogi. The crane also seems to be able to track prey to itself by remaining motionless. So this, this, this stillness that she represents, you have the paralysis, the stillness, might be the connection um, to the crane. Um, and, you know, so, you know, again, the yellow part, it, it, it's, it's very clear that in her worship that um, yellow objects and yellow offerings are offered. Um, but again, its connection to her in terms of any of the stories connected with her is not clear. And he mentions uh, Mahant Ramashankar Tripathi told him that women in the South India wear yellow and that is an auspicious color. Um, he suggested the yellow symbolized the sun and gold. And the lust for money paralyzes people, hence Bhagalamukhi's ability to paralyze, and that the sight of yellow, which represents gold, has the same effect. So you might be looking at Bhagalamukhi as that, um, if we see her as an aspect of the divine feminine, as that... Um, uh, that ability to attract, that sort of initial sting of the anima, if you will, in Jungian terms, that that yellow represents um, this initial, um, you know, when, when one falls in love, that initial feeling of par paralysis or helplessness that one might have. Bhagalamukhi might represent that sort of mysterious aspect of the feminine, okay, and that, that sort of ability to... Um, stay still but again there's nothing that that absolutely definitively connects that to her but it does seem like it might be very likely um now again the, the idea of her seated on a corpse which makes her similar to um well certainly goddesses like kali and tara who stand on a corpse or goddesses like chamunda who do sit or have a corpse as their seat um this is that's certainly something very tantric and it seems to be connected with her um, ability to grant um, to grant cities. Now, there's a particular ritual that is mentioned by Kinsley um, called the uh, uh, Sava Sadhana. Okay, and that is that has to do with um, that is like sort of a practice that has to do with a corpse because Shava or Shava, I should say Shava Sadhana. Um, that has to you know Shava means corpse, and you know, so this is, you know, so so the presence of it there, it says, might be interpreted as a reference to this particular um, practice or this particular spiritual endeavor, um, which, uh, as Kinsley notes, is described in detail in several tantric texts. Uh, the Tantra Sara of uh, Krishnananda uh, uh, Agama Vagisha 
uh, describes this practice as follows. The sadaka is to take care, first of all, to select the right location, the right time, and the proper kind of corpse with which to undertake this worship. A deserted house, the bank of a river, a mountain, a sacred place, the root of a bilva tree, a forest, and a cremation ground are all recommended as suitable. The best time is to be the eighth lunar titi, a lunar day, bright or dark, on a Tuesday night. The corpse itself should be intact and should belong to a young member of the Chandala caste, which is a low caste, who drowned, committed suicide, was killed by a spear, lightning, a snake, or battle, a battlefield facing the enemy. There's something very necromantic about this, too. So, um, you know, even though this is the object here is not necromancy, but necromancers might find this interesting. Uh, the sadaka should avoid using the corpse of a person who was very attached to a spouse, lived in a moral life, or was prominent, or died of famine. So the sadaka takes the corpse to the place of worship, reciting a mantra to purify it as he does so, okay? And then this goes through the whole ritual of offering flowers and, you know, worshiping the guardians of the directions, the 64 yoginis, and then um, sits upon this, the corpse as he would on a horse. And then he expresses his desire and so forth. Now, um, now the connection to Bhagalamukhi, uh, it says that she is, uh, the images of, of Bhagalamukhi is seated on a corpse while pulling the tongue of an enemy, and that might relate to the theme of the sada, uh, Shava um, Sadhana, because the in the Tantric text, they suggest that the corpse might become animated and become agitated um, and become aggressive towards the uh, Sadak. So um, this particular Sadaka stresses the importance of remaining fearless in such circumstances. This is again Kinsley. And facing and overcoming the corpse, the corpse's spirit, or the spirit possessing the corpse. Um, and the um, in this description, it says the describe this person describing their own experience with the ritual. It says how he's instructed to deal with the eventuality of the corpse becoming enlivened. It says the old man had warned me that if she, the corpse in this case was a female, tried to get up. I should knock her down and pin her firmly. He was also warned that the corpse often begins to growl and scream at the sadaka who is seeking to control it. In Tibetan Buddhist tantric corpse sadhana, sadhana or called chod rites, the adept is warned that if the corpse comes to life, it must be subdued, which may involve biting off the protruding tongue before the ghost can devour the adept. Now that's interesting because now we have the imagery of devouring on both sides. Bhagalamukhi as the devourer, as, as the, the devouring parvati, and then the idea of the corpse that might devour if the tongue is not stilled or cut off. Okay, so, um, you know, she's, um, you know, so that's, that's that there's, a, there's a potential connection there. Again, it's never been explicit, but, um, but it may explain um, the power that she has. You know, because these these rituals are performed to achieve certain cities. So if, if there's, if that is actually... Um, if someone's trying to achieve a certain knowledge uh, from, you know, from the dead, um, there's a, he also talks about um, a goddess called uh, um, Karnapisachi, who lives in the heart of a corpse. She favors a successful sadaka by coming invisibly to him and whispering in his ear the correct answer to any question. Now that sounds very much like necromancy, because the idea is that the corpse or the ghoul or the... Um, you know, whatever's left. It certainly, this is a very ancient idea. You certainly see it in ancient Greece. Um, that the the dead, and, and it was all in the Near East, actually, at that time, uh, that the dead have knowledge of the past, you know, at present and future. So whatever whatever else they may be, and generally the dead are considered to be very, very weak, um, 
the um, the dead you know the dead are considered to be um, to have that knowledge. So this is this is really a necromantic ritual where um, it says ascending her, getting her power. The sadaka can go anywhere and see the past, present, and future. Um, and he indicates that this deity might be summoned or commanded through the Shava Sadhana, and whom the aspirant seeks to contact through this rite. Uh, Karna Pisachi is also described and discussed by contemporary tantric practitioner as a deity whom one encounters in the cremation ground and from whom one may obtain knowledge of the present and the past. Um, and again, they're, they're talking about it as shamanistic, but it's also necromantic. So Bhagalamuki has this kind of association with, um, with necromancy in this, um, in this aspect. And she is a, um, you know, so that's, that's very, very interesting. You know, there's the, um, you know, uh, there's the devouring aspect. There's the, um, you know, the, the granting of these cities or, or powers. And, you know, there, there's this association, but nonetheless, and there's also that association with auspiciousness. It occurs to me too, that the color yellow in that sense may have to do with, um, uh, you know, the, the, the color yellow may have to do with sort of um, material wealth or material gain. Um, so certainly if uh, the Siddhis have to do with powers over uh, either individuals or circumstances in the material world, you know, as the grantor of Siddhis, that might also have its, its own um, connotations of at least materiality, abundance, or um, auspiciousness. But And also, again, this sort of knowledge of the future that comes uh, traditionally, again, from the dead uh, in this particular uh, understanding of things. And those who are more interested in necromancy and the connection between um, these kinds of underworld spirits and, uh, and prophecy um, might find that an interesting avenue to explore. Um, so my own reflections on Bhagalamukhi, and this is, this is somewhat short, mainly because this week, mainly because, you know, there's, there's very limited amount of information that's sort of available here other than these kinds of um, sort of um, conjectured uh, associations and, what we, and, and from what we do know about Bhagalamukhi worship in the temples. Um, Okay, so the idea of Bhagalamukhi as the paralyzer, okay, in addition to whatever else that may mean in terms of, of powers or magical powers, um, in, in, the more, in the broader sense, paralysis, that forces us to stop. If we're connect, connecting it to the image of the crane, the crane stands still, and stillness, uh, nischala, the stillness, is actually the, um, the ideal state of, of meditation. It's, it's the, that, that being still, it's stopping. Um, I'm still recording these during the coronavirus quarantines, and that is certainly one of the aspects of the quarantine, regardless of, of what your, your situation is, is that everything has to come to a stop. All the busyness has to come to a stop. Um, and so there's that, that, there's sort of that element of the feminine that stops things, okay? So she's definitely very much associated with that. And we all seem to, have, we all now have, I could, I could probably safely say just about all of us now, because I think at this point there's only eight countries not affected by coronavirus, um, understand the notion of having to stop, okay? But having to stop is not necessarily, I mean, like I said, it's not a bad thing. You 
you stop, you reflect, you, um, you, you may, you, you may possibly take a new direction because you may just be, you know, moving, your, moving along unconsciously and not really thinking about what you're doing or where you're going. Okay. Um, and the fact here that the tongue is grabbed suggests stopping speech. And that also would be connected with meditation because I think as I've mentioned, I know I certainly mentioned it in the Tara episode and at least one of the intros to the Tantra is that, um, when we talk about, um, the real, the close experience of the divine, we're talking about one that is, um, beyond speech, that's beyond thought. And so the, the stilling of the tongue may also represent to some degree the stilling of the mind because the mind runs all the time. If you sit down and try to meditate, you'll find that your mind is running like crazy all of the time. It's like you're thinking about, I get up in the morning, I meditate every morning, and it's like all I can think is about, oh, I got to do this today, and I got to do this, and I got to go there, and I got to take care of this, and I got to pay this, and I got to do that. And it's like, you're just kind of like saying to yourself, my God, just shut up, you know? Um, so Bhagavad could be an aid to meditation in that sense of like, you know, stop it. Still the tongue of the mind, as it were. You know, stopping, and not only stopping the words, but also stopping the analysis. Things happen to us, and we have to, like, pick it apart, and we have to say, well, what does this mean? What does this mean? Sometimes you don't, sometimes you just need to evaluate without, um, sometimes you know the meaning without having to evaluate it or, or take it apart. You know, this. not everything has to be a deconstruction. Okay. So that's, um, so to me, that's, that's part of the essence of Bhagavad the understanding that comes without having to evaluate. And that's a highly feminine thing because, um, this idea of rationalizing and philosophizing and thinking things out and, you know, writing long papers on it, that's certainly a very masculine thing. It's a very masculine, rational ego thing. And, um, she, she takes a hold of this male demon and stills his tongue. So even though she is the source of that thought, she is also the one who stops it. Okay, so uh, so she really asserts her dominance over the intellect. Um, I also wanted to comment on the color yellow. Okay, um, now Kinsley he talks about the um, the yugas. Now let me just see if I can find this because I, I closed this before I really noticed it. But there's something about um, the different yugas, and I actually do want to read that to you. And I don't know, you know. Of course, I could have written it down, but I, but I didn't. Um, so let's see uh, if I can find it. Yes, here it is. Okay. So he mentions the four, the yugas. Now, yugas are different eras or cycles of time. Okay. And the four yugas or world ages, as he mentions, this is on page 198 in Kinsley. He says they have the following colors. Krita, which is sometimes called um, sataya, is um, white. Treta is yellow, Dvarpa is red, and Kali is black. Now, right, incidentally, we are supposedly in Kali Yuga. Um, I do wonder if Kali Yuga is, and I have, I have, I've often wondered, especially in these crises, whether or not Kali Yuga is coming to an end. Um, but, but I should note that Yuga is coming to an end is not apocalyptic in the sense of the end of the world. Um, it actually just means that um, a new age is about to begin. So it's cyclical, Okay. Um, and he mentions that in this system, yellow is next to white in excellence, okay? Because white, now here, here you're getting back to ideas of purity, right? And um, although it's interesting, again, that the color white in Hinduism has to do with death. So, um, but that's, it's, it's the ultimate pure color is supposed to be white. Or it's, it's the, the combination of all colors, really. But yellow is the next one down. 
um, and, and of course, the decline in purity from the Krita to the Kali, which is then the worst. Um, and he also mentions the five Bhutas, or elements of creation, earth, fire, water, wind, and space, are denoted by colors and shapes. And earth is designated as yellow, which would connect Bhagalamukhi to, um, you know, more material um, kinds of gains. Because, you know, because the earth, you know, in... in um, Roman speak, you know, Pluton, you know, Roman and, and Greek, you know, the Pluton, the, the wealth that's below the surface. Um, most of our gold, you know, is, is mi you mine for gold, right? It's in the earth. Um, but there's this idea of um, yellow as being like, you know, it, you know, I mean, we think of, again, we think of, as we said before, sunlight and, um, you know, gold and, uh, you know, yellow is considered to be a very bright, positive and auspicious kind of a color. Um, and so, you know, so, but with the, with the Mahavidyas, we see something that's a little, a little less than pure. Um, so, for instance, Bhagalamukhi, if she's associated with yellow, Tara, we noticed, was associated with red. Kali is associated with black. Um, they're, they're, they represent these um, other elements that are not perhaps uh, spiritually pure. And when I think of that, I think of that as being close to the essence of consciousness, or, you know, the, the, the simplest, maybe. Maybe I don't like the word pure. Maybe I like the, the idea of it being the simplest. It embodies everything, but in the simplest form and becomes more complex um, as we go through the ages. But that's just how it goes. I mean, it becomes, it goes from one to the other, and it's not like we're going from good to evil. Again, you want to get those ideas out of your head. This is not a movement from good to evil. It's just a move, um, you know, there, there, there's different kinds of difficulties and excesses in each of the yugas. So even though one might be the purest and perhaps might be thought of um, on the simplest level as the most moral era, for instance, or the one that's the most, um, the closest to what we would think of perhaps as the divine, um, that doesn't mean it's not without its catastrophes and without its problems. Um, it's just, it's kind of like the ages that they talk about in um, Hesiod and in Ovid, you know, the ages of man. Usually it's gold, silver, bronze and iron, or in uh, Hesiod, it's gold, silver, uh, bronze, heroes, and iron. The age of heroes, by the way, is where the Nephilim are supposed to come from in the Bible as well. They, there's some interpretation that says the Nephilim mentioned um, in just before the Noah story in Exodus um, actually refer to um, the, the demigods, the heroes of the Trojan War. Interesting idea. Um, one you might want to look up at some point if, uh, if that little side tangent interests you. But okay, but if Bhagalamukhi is associated with yellow, then she'd be associated with the Treta Yuga, okay? And in this one, the power of the humans that exist in it, it diminishes slightly. It says, uh, kings and Brahmins need to actively fulfill their desires instead of mere fiat of will. People grow more materialistic and less inclined towards spirituality. Wars break out frequently and climate changes become commonplace, giving rise to deserts and oceans. Okay, so Treta Yuga is um, one step down from Sukta Yuga, or Krita Yuga, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm combining the two names. Um, and as, it, as they say, this was, again, I saw this, um, I was reading this in an um, explanation of the Yugas. They said, um, despite these seemingly negative effects, the Treta Yuga also brought knowledge of universal magnetism. This knowledge allowed humans to understand the forces of nature and the true nature of the universe. Agriculture and mining came into existence along with norms and rules to keep society under control. So what does that mean then? This is, this is the Treta Yuga is where we get what? Science and where we get law. Hmm. 
And um, if I'm going to compare it to Western religion, this is the period of time where we move from, at least in some anthropological thinking, from magical thought to religious thought. With religion, where you have a hierarchy, where you have a king, where you have a structure, and where you have a religious system that mirrors that, that's very similarly hierarchical. And science mirrors that, too. Um, Alan Watts has a wonderful um, lecture um, on the uh, ceramic and fully automatic models of the universe. He says in the ceramic model, and this is this is this basically characterizes the West. In the uh, ceramic model, the world is made, and the Creator is like you know one you know we, we even see it in Genesis. You know, man is made out of clay. You know, and it's in other mythologies as well. But the idea of the Creator as the maker that you know also becomes the king, and we see this translated into. Uh, versions of Christianity, uh, certain versions of Protestantism, you know, you see the Protestant churches look like courtrooms and not. sometimes the ministers used to dress like judges. I don't know that they do anymore, but certainly the traditional ministerial outfit was, um, was definitely meant to look like that of a judge. So, um, yeah, so this idea of law, and science picks up the idea of laws. We talk about scientific law. Uh, laws of physics, the laws of, you know, there's the idea that there is some kind of an order and some kind of a law. The only difference is, as as um, Alan Watts notes, he said in the fully automatic model, you just take the idea of this creator king person out of it, but it's the same model, okay? And this seems to come from the Treta Yuga, and that's interesting because that's kind of one step down from what's considered to be the purest and the closest to um, the, the purely spiritual, Okay. So, um, now Bhagalamukhi in the Treta Yuga, her association with the color yellow and perhaps with that as the color of this Yuga. And again, there's no writing that supports this. This is just kind of reflecting on the correspondences and the associations here. That she is one who provides correct speech and stops incorrect speech. So that could see her as having to do a lot with law and with, um, excuse me, morality and the creation of, um, you know, um, the, the structure of societies and civilizations. So that would somewhat make sense, this association of yellow with those um, particular aspects. Um, and also there's a reminder of the need for silence and her being still uh, and listening to inner speech, which is often forgotten because we certainly in um, our uber-scientific way of thinking uh, we tend to discount intuition and gut feelings. We think that they're all um, delusional or they come from cravings or they all come from our emotional overreactions or something. And that is not necessarily the case. There is such thing as something as the true inner voice that tells you things. And I think, interestingly, probably most scientific discoveries have been made by scientists who um, have had certain dreams or have listened to certain um, impulses. Um, you can find a lot of examples of this if you look it up. Look up, you know scientists and dreams see how many of your the theories that you take for granted now did not come from um a scientist having a dream and then suddenly going wait and making a connection and then being able to apply it to their work so um yeah you don't want to discount that inner knowledge there's a, a tendency to do that uh to to deal with what we think of only as objective and data driven but the problem is there's no such thing as objective Everything that we look at is, uh, you know, the decisions that we make, we make with uh, about, you know, what we determine when you look at data, it's going to be, the interpretation is going to be with respect to your own experience. 
There's no way of getting around that. There's no such thing as a purely objective opinion. So, but the question is, I mean, which doesn't have to be a problem. It's just if, if you know, it, it but it can, it, it, it doesn't make the sciences quite as pure as they like to appear to be in terms of the search for what they think of as truth, okay? And again, it's not that certain truths can't be arrived at by science. Certainly they are. Um, but remember, science is just about looking for patterns. And um, there's not really any necessity that those patterns have to occur. I mean, there are anomalies to those patterns, and we just tend to dismiss those as somehow being, you know, delusional or a mistake or an error. And it's like, yeah, no, aberrations happen. And, um, and I think one of the lessons of the Mahavidyas is certainly the idea that, you know, chaos does exist. Um, you can't, anybody who's a chaos magician out there, I mean, they know that, you know, chaos is not, you know, it's better not to be stuck in patterns. It's better not to be stuck in causal patterns all the times and causal assumptions. Um, and again, that's a very Zen Buddhist idea going back to Buddhism. You know, the, the Zen master is somebody who's, you know, doesn't expect anything and is prepared for anything because they don't, they don't make causal assumptions. So, uh, I don't know, just some things to think about. Um, now I'm curious, I was always, I was curious to know with this episode with the demon, uh, Madana, whether or not, um, this demon, uh, what, what, if, if this was said to have happened, this particular episode in a particular yuga, but when I actually went back and read the, um, Bhagalamukhi, um, uh, I forget what it's called, but it's a type of stotra. Um, I don't want to state the wrong name, but it's, it's, uh, I actually read it and it only makes a very cursory mention. It doesn't say when it happened or, or, or anything like that. So whether or not this was supposed to occur in the Trata Yuga, I have no idea. Um, I'm not, I can't assume that because there's nothing in the story that, that tells me that. You know, perhaps somebody who's listening might have a better knowledge of this and maybe maybe they've seen a source that talks about it, but I, I've not seen one. Okay. Um, it also occurs to me that the yellow has to do with the Manipura Chakra, okay, which is the um, the solar plexus. It's sort of the, um, you know, the stomach center, you know, the one just above the Svadhisthana and below the heart. And that's kind of the um, the actual center point of the body, which again makes sense with the idea of stillness. That that still center point, like the axis mundi, that that center point. Um, and that might also connect Bhagalamukhi to some degree to Tara, who is associated with the energy of the sun. Um, but I think Bhagalamukhi is also connected to the Vishuddhi chakra because she has to do with speech and right speech. Okay, and Vishuddhi is the one; it's above the Anahata. It's and that's its color is usually like a blue color. Um, but that is associated with communication. Now I should note that the colors and the associations of the chakras are something that have come much later. So how much these had to do with any kind of traditional thinking? I mean, again, this is just kind of brainstorming on it, but um, it, it doesn't it doesn't necessarily or historically have that kind of association, but, um, but, but she seems to have to do with, uh, with those activities and with things that have to do with, you know, um, the way that one makes their way in the world through speech, the way that one comes to know things through language. Um, and also again, the idea of, of putting a stop to that and stopping it. Um, so with that, that's all I actually have on Bhagalamukhi. Um, there's not, um, again, there, there's, there's a lot of mystery surrounding her and her, um, you know, the, again, the colors that she wears, her associations with cranes. The main thing I think we can take away is this idea of the paralyzer or paralysis, the, the one that's um, 
she makes you stop. And when you stop um, and you're still, then you can be quiet and then you can actually hear the correct voice or the correct speech that comes from within. And I think that is sort of the mysterious power of Bhagalamukhi, even more than the idea of um, silencing your enemies or, or, or anything like that. I think that seems to be the more uh, profound side to her. So with that, I'm going to end this particular week's podcast. Um, and again, uh, just pointing you to cathonia.net. Uh, which is very much improved, has a lot of stuff connected to it now. My other services, uh, my Liminal Reiki website, liminalreiki.com, is also connected into cathonia.net under the Related Services tab. So now there's a lot more on offer. I mean, you have the free podcasts, you have links to my publications um, and prospective publications, but you also have here, um, now I actually have certain services that I do offer that you can take advantage of, and I will frequently have different, um, I'm, I'm going to start having different specials and things. So um, if you, you know, I, if the prices seem too steep to you, you know, there might be, you know, you know, take a look out, you know, there may be some discounts. If you're a patron, uh, we'll start offering discounts for patrons on these services as well. So, um, you know, so definitely if you're interested, uh, patreon.com slash Cathonia. Um, has a lot of, lot of fringe benefits. Uh, take a look at the different levels there and what's offered. And um, a big thank you to patrons. I have some new patrons this month. That's really cool. I'm, I'm very, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm like, yay, I was very pleased to see that. So thank you, anybody who's new and anybody who's stuck around for a while. Um, I really appreciate you um, supporting my work. If you don't want to get involved in Patreon every month, and I realize, especially those who have their own Patreon, it's a real pain in the neck to join somebody else's Patreon because basically they take their dues out of any money you earn from anybody else. So it's really hard to just say like, okay, here's just my Patreon money over here. You, They start deducting whatever you've put into other creators, which I don't like. Um, but that's apparently the way it is. So um, so it's, you know, that that's just kind of how it goes. But... Um, you know, but but if you don't want to do the Patreon thing for whatever reason, but you'd like to make a donation on the homepage of Cathonia.net in the sidebar, uh, there is, in fact, a PayPal donation button, and it can be any amount that you want. So, um, you know, that's, you know, that would also be very welcome and is uh, is very much appreciated. Um, check us out on social media, Cathonia Podcast or Cathonia. should be on the last slide of the YouTube video. But, again, quick summary. Uh, Cathonia on YouTube, Cathonia Podcast, and all the other three places. Um, it's one word on Twitter and Instagram, Cathonia Podcast. And um, uh, this is, and then um, on Cathonia Podcast, and then uh, on uh, Facebook, it's actually Cathonia Podcast, two words. So uh, so check it out, and hope to hope that you tune in into the next episode. Bye now.